And I'm Corey. Merrick's my wife. She's pastor here. I'm just a minister. She got mad at me the other day when I introduced myself for the, <laughs> she said, just Corey. I said, well, I'm, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody that <laughs> saved my soul. <laughs> That's, it sounds like a song. <laughs> it's just a couple weeks till Easter. We're a week away from the beginning of Holy Week. Who's excited? And because of that, we're continuing on in our series on salvation. This is week six. And I titled it, The Air Up There. And that's air with an H. The air up there. It's not, you know, it's like not like the air you breathe. But it is, of course, an homage to the wonderful 1994 classic film, The Air Up There, wherein Jimmy Dillon was a, he was an achieved college basketball star that traveled to Africa to recruit a 6'10", 17-year-old. It was a very small village that this kid was in. He was trying to recruit that kid to his college team and make him come back as a coach. And, and he ends up just coaching that local tribe team to a championship instead, and then he develops some really cool, long-lasting relationships and comes to understand that cultural differences are a good thing. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the message today, so we'll move on. <laughs> <clears throat> Wonderful movie. It, Kevin Bacon. Who doesn't love Kevin Bacon? Apparently half of you. <laughs> so... The air up there. Today's topic on salvation has to do with adoption or the, adopt, the doctrine of adoption. And we'll explore how it's multifaceted and may have more implications than you realize. It's rich and it's profound and it has the power to transform our lives as believers. So let's pray and we'll get into it. So Heavenly Father, be near today. Fill us with the joy of your love and your grace as we exalt your name and we give you praise. Let us open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word and the work of your spirit as we consider the powerful idea of adoption into the family of Christ. And we acknowledge the incredible links that you went to to make it available to us. In your mighty name, amen. Has anyone heard of the uh, new open chat artificial intelligence program, chat GPT? Is that, it's crazy. It's crazy. Has anyone used it? Just Linda, that's, and you too? So I'd never used it before. And it's really, it's really frightening to think where AI can go in the next few years if, if it's not her put some uh, governing forces over it, but um, I was, I was kind of struggling on coming up. I, you know, you've heard me talk up here enough. You know I'm kind of into humor. I, I like making things like heart, lighthearted. Um, I wanted to come up with a clever name for my sermon title. <laughs> uh, I was having a hard time with that, so I was like, I don't wonder what this chat GPT can do. And I, let's, let's give it a run through, and I... I got on there and I 
a little bit nervous, which is weird. I said, it's technology. I'm not intimidated by technology, but I don't want this thing to start reading my mind. I don't know. <laughs> and I, I got, got on there, and basically it's who, who used, like, uh, AOL Instant Messenger when it first came out? Kind of, that's my generation kind of thing. That's what it kind of resembled. It's just an open chat box where you type in what you want to communicate, you, and you enter that, and it responds like a person in text format. But you can, add, you can watch it think, sort of, think, uh, because it types it out as it's being processed. It doesn't just wait and then pff, it pastes the whole big response. It pastes as it goes. So anyway, uh, just to test it out, I, I went on there and uh, here's what I entered. Create a humorous title for a sermon on the doctrine of adoption. And mind you, I, I used my superpower of dad humor to come up with the title. I didn't use anything that it, that it suggested. But I thought some of them were clever enough to share with you, so I'm going to give you a quick rundown on, the, on my favorites. Adopted by Grace, how God chose you, even though you still haven't figured out how to assemble that IKEA furniture... God's big adoption plan, why you're not too old, too young, or too furry to join the family. <laughs> adoption, when God calls you son or daughter and not just hey you anymore. <laughs> Who's your daddy exploring the doctrine of adoption? <laughs> adoption, when God picks you first, even though you've always been picked last in dodgeball. Adopted by God, the only family that will never ask you about your inheritance. <laughs> God's adopted children, when he gives you a new name, even though you still haven't decided on your Starbucks order. There's one I didn't put on here, it just came to mind. Uh, adoption, when God chooses you, even though your biological parents didn't. That's why I left it off. I should have just left it off. <laughs> well, it's not bad, right? That's uh, all right. On to the good stuff. And so, so far we've discussed, discussed Jesus' substitutionary death, the resurrection life, God's sovereignty, uh, justification, sanctification, faith, and repentance. So when I tell you we're continuing on with lessons and salvations, you... It, you might think, why are, why are we still in this, and haven't we covered it, isn't it repetitious? And uh, Not at all. It's, uh, I, I find it rather than repetitious, this is expansive. Um, it widens our understandings in profoundly wonderful ways, and to know him is to love him. So personally, I, I could cover a salvation message every Sunday because our great commission is to see the lost saved and disciples made. It's also very important to dig deep and grow closer to God. So the doctrine of adoption is rooted in the work of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a doctrine that reveals the love, mercy, and grace of God towards sinners who were once lost and condemned. It's a doctrine that shows us true identity, reveals our new family, and promises our eternal inheritance in Christ.
But there's much more to the doctrine than just meets the eye on service level. There's, there's an important distinction I'd, I'd like to make before we do the deep dive, and that God didn't make Jesus. Jesus has been there since the beginning. And that's an important enough point that it takes up the very first scripture in the Bible. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was there, he was with God, and he was as God. And then in John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Hallelujah. Jesus didn't suddenly develop out of necessity to redeem mankind. He was part of the plan from the very beginning. And so were you. And that should be very reassuring. Satan works very hard to confuse and complicate the gospel. Thankfully for us, God commissioned Paul to write the epistles, the 13 letters that he had sent to the various churches that were later canonized into the Bible. And they were to clarify the gospel for both the believer and the unbeliever. And at the heart of the epistles is that no one can be justified by or through their own acts. In Galatians 2.16, it says, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Did anyone catch that? Not justified by works. Not justified by works. Not justified by works. He says it three times in the same verse. There's an, important, there's an importance given to that. So in the Bible, the word adoption appears exclusively in the epistles. It's used five times. Once it references Israel as a nation. In uh, Romans 9.4, it says, they are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them, and he gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. The second time it refers to the full redemption of the believer's body at the second coming, which is in Romans 8.23. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of our future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait for eager ho- with eager hope for the day when God will give us a full r- the full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he promised us. The other three times that it's referenced, that adoption is referenced, is uh, it's referenced as a present factor, a condition in the life of Christians. So describing not only the familial condition of believers, God's family, but also their personal authority. These texts are in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, Romans 8, 15, and Ephesians 1, 5. And these are where we're going to focus today. So let me know if I need to repeat those really quick. Anyone? Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Romans 8, 15. Ephesians 1, 5. 
So let's consider the legal aspect of adoption. In the ancient world, adoption was a common practice, especially among the wealthy and the powerful. It was a way of extending their family line, ensuring legacy, providing for their heirs. And adopted children were legally and socially equivalent to biological children. There was no distinction made. Adopted children enjoyed the same rights and privileges of their sonship and daughterhood. In the New Testament, there are several examples of adoption that illustrate this legal aspect. The most famous, of course, the prodigal son, Luke 15. Uh, I know Jonathan already touched that briefly a few weeks ago, but the gist of it is in the story, a young man, well, a young son asks his father to share uh, for his share of the family's inheritance, and then he immediately squanders it on some wildlife. When he comes to his senses, he returns home, and his father welcomes him back with open arms. No resentment, no judgment, no condemnation. Throws a party and a feast in his honor. And the father says to the older son who didn't squander his inheritance, he says, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. This story shows us that the prodigal son was legally and socially equal to his brother, even though he had squandered his inheritance and brought shame on the family. When he returned, he was adopted back into the family, given all the rights and privileges of sonship. And this is a powerful picture of God's love and grace towards us. We are sinners. Even when we rebel and go astray, God welcomes us back to his family and gives us all the blessings of sonship and daughterhood. And I'm sure there's probably some personal stories in just this room that ring pretty true to that. And since we should not ever discount the power of testimony, I'm going to share some of my story with you. All right. My parents are part of our online community, so it's a little awkward for me to talk about my younger self. Uh, <laughs> just picturing the look on my mom's face if I say something that she doesn't quite remember the same way. <laughs> that is if, if Matthew is being good enough to let them actually listen. And rabbit trail, yesterday Matthew said his first sentence. <laughs> uh, you know how your kids develop their own kind of language that you as their parent understand? Well, he, he's, he likes to do, he said, chase, 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 chase. And what that means is chase me. And he does laps around our coffee table in the living room, and he wants you to chase him. If you stop, he'll, more, more. <laughs> <laughs> and so Merrick had to leave to go uh, to the fairgrounds yesterday, and uh, he wanted her to chase him before she left. Honestly, I think it's just him using his cuteness to make everyone in the house work out. But uh, So Merrick did a couple laps around the table, and then she's like, I got to go. And Matt goes, good job, Mama. He's going to be an encourager just like my wife. <laughs> Sorry, that was totally astray. It wasn't anywhere near this. Uh, but don't worry, Mom and Dad, I'm not going to embarrass you, I hope. Uh, I can't imagine being Jonathan having to stand up here and give his per personal anecdotes every week with Harley and Julie sitting right here. 
we're going to talk about that one later. <clears throat> and Jonathan is online or listening to us right now, so he can give me advice on how to deal with that anxiety, I guess. Anyway, story, my story, and go. <clears throat> so when I was a little guy, uh, my family attended a Nazarene church, and that's the church that I was uh, dedicated to the Lord in. I remember going to the youth group. Much like here, it was in a separate building from, from the main auditorium. I remember uh, learning this little light of mine. I remember learning the... This is the church, and here's steeple. And that church had a massive steeple on it, too. So I thought that that was something that was just for that church, and it was super special to us. I remember going to my parents' Bible study host house and playing with all the kids there and taking all the skin off of my right shin when I stepped on a hoe in the backyard and we were playing hide-and-go-seek in the dark. I was probably only four or five, but I still have the scar. <laughs> that was fun. But what I'm getting at is if you feel like kids will never remember being introduced to the Lord at a young age, you're wrong. They do. It's not because we have special memory powers. I certainly don't. It's because I have a special God. But unfortunately, after a series of church hurts, my parents decided to stop attending. What's weird is that me and both of my siblings, I have an older brother and sister, we all found ways to attend church on our own. <clears throat> I would typically attend a Methodist church with a baseball buddy's family. And I even participated in the youth group there. And I went there into my early teens, probably until eighth grade-ish. Uh, and then in high school, I met the new kid. It, <laughs> uh, he just moved into town from Alaska, and we became really fast friends. It was weird because we really don't have a whole lot in common. At least we didn't then. We do now. Uh, he's still my friend. He's more like a brother. So if you're watching, Z, I love you. Anyways, uh, he, invited, he invited me to attend church with him and his mom. And it wasn't a church that I had ever heard of. I knew nothing about. Uh, it's a vineyard church, if you're familiar with the denomination. At the time, I, I had no idea what it was. But uh, the location it was at, up until very recently before that, was a bowling alley. And I spent a lot of my childhood in bowling alleys. And if you want to talk about that later, I've got stories. But uh, to say, I personally, my first impression of the church was disappointment because the biggest bowling alley in town was gone, and it was a church I'd never heard of. <laughs> <clears throat> so it got better. <laughs> it just, it started off on the wrong foot, but it got better. Uh, it was my first experience at a church that had a worship band. Until then... No joke, I'm being literal. I thought the word was worship. You know, like God's a battleship out there on the water doing, sink, you sink my battleship. I, th I thought he was fighting our battles for us as a warship. I thought that's what that meant. But my, my spirit came alive in that place. I started attending regularly. I served on occasion. 
I got to change the vellums <laughs> on the overhead projector <laughs> so that you knew the lyrics to them songs. We have come a long ways, folks. Oh, no, the light went out. Oh, nobody's going to sing. But then I, I started playing in the youth group worship band, and that was led by Pastor Jimmy John Morris. He's now a senior pastor down the road here in Covington at Mountain Vineyard. We were pretty locally famous. Let me tell you, our band's title was God Rock. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we, we had a tight grip on the Yakima Pentecostal youth scene. It, it's nothing. It's not a, it's not a thing. <laughs> but... We, we were selling out all the venues of the Young Life middle school lunch cafeteria things. It was, it was great. I, lo I loved that church. I loved that church. I had never experienced a church where I felt that way about the environment I was in. <clears throat> but <laughs> in 1996... The very last play of the very last game of my baseball season, I tore my right knee up way bad, way bad. Uh, it was on the cleat of a second baseman who was blocking the bag spikes out. <clears throat> I went in full speed. No, you don't want to end the season. You don't want to be the last out. I was going as hard as I could, and he got me. If you ever see MLB players get angry because somebody's blocking a bag with spikes or the runner's uh, diving in with their spikes in the air, there is a reason I can show you. It was gory. It was ripped. It was torn. It had some straight edges to it, but it was pretty much my whole leg. And it took a lot of stitches to close up. And when I dropped to the infield grass, clutching my leg and screaming bloody murder, uh, my dad became superhuman, somehow went from the stands to the roof of the dugout, and then went Matrix-style, jumping from the roof of that dugout to second base in one swift movement. <laughs> it, it was impressive. Uh, he soared, and uh, it speaks volumes to the love of a father. I don't... I don't know if he even remembers doing it. It happened so fast. The moment was so intense. But it was instinctive. If he does remember doing it, he's probably surprised that I remember it because of how much pain I was in. But I remember it vividly, vividly. So for the rest of that fall, I walked with a pretty stiff-legged limp just because of how tight the flesh was from being stitched up and healing. So you can imagine the, the stick leg, stiff leg. At one, one just normal old random Sunday service, it felt like somebody lit my right kneecap on fire from the inside. Oh my. I hurt so bad I was seeing stars. I got up and sprinted out of the auditorium I went straight to the bowling shoe checkout counter, got a lane and a size 10 and a 16-pound ball. Joking, it was a bowling alley. 
no, I sprinted out of the sanctuary and went straight to the foyer. Started pacing, started uh, deep breathing, just trying to do pain control. And my buddy came out with me. He didn't know if I needed an ambulance or he, he was concerned, but he didn't know what to do. And we were out there for a couple minutes before Jimmy John, JJ, uh, followed us out. Calm as could be. Didn't even ask me a question. He just sat me down. He said to me, God's healing this. It's the first time I'd ever been prophesied over. God's healing this. And sometimes we have to suffer to find healing. Wow. I had never experienced God like that. And I bawled, bawled. My eyes came out of my head. There was so much water pressure behind them. <clears throat> Not out of pain, out of peace. <clears throat> so after about five minutes or so, the pain went away as suddenly as it started. JJ looked at me and he said, are you saved? I was like, um, what? I've been going to church my whole life, basically. I was living a good life. I was doing good things. That's what you mean, right? I thought I knew Jesus pretty well. He obviously picked up on the fact that I had no idea what I was supposed to be saved from. So he asked a more direct question if I had ever accepted Jesus as my Savior. <clears throat> I can't imagine what color my face turned when he told me I couldn't do anything to earn what was already freely given to me. I just had to accept it. And so I did. JJ led me in a very simple prayer, and I accepted it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Just your regular old super macho, masculine teenage athlete reduced to a slobbering, snotty, blubbering mess sitting on a bench that was made out of reclaimed wood that used to be the rack holding bright pink and yellow bowling balls. <laughs> Is that not a great picture? <laughs> a week later, I was baptized in an inflatable kiddie pool in that same foyer. I was on fire for God. But it didn't take much to change that. About a year later, it was me that got to experience what church hurt felt like. I left and I never came back. I won't go into details, but suffice it to say, it was pretty egregious. And I, I blamed it on God. I never denounced my salvation. I never became an unbeliever. I lived a life that was far from God for about a dozen years. And then when I had squandered my inheritance and brought shame on my family, I had nowhere left to go and I had no further I could fall. God opened his arms. He said, I'm glad you're back. Let's have a party. <laughs> no judgment. 
no condemnation, no conditions. Sometimes we have to suffer to find healing. Let me tell you, I love being a part of this family. I'm ashamed of what I went through to have to get here. Beautiful thing about being adopted into this family is that once you accept it, it's no longer about how you feel about yourself. It's no longer about how you think other people feel about you. It's who you are in Christ. Amen. Very thankful for that. And Okay, back to the text. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Paul writes, But what, when, the, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God spent the, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you know, are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. With an H. In this passage, Paul's emphasizing the legal nature of adoption. He says that we are redeemed by the law, from the law by Christ, and adopted as sons and daughters of God. And as a result, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we have the spirit with God, of God within us testifying to our adoption and calling out to God as our father. And because we are his children, we are also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And this means we will inherit all the blessings and glory that God has promised to his children. And just for clarification, when, God, when Paul says sons, that's not exclusive to the male human beings. He's... <laughs> He, he clears this up in, in Galatians 3, 26 to 28, where it says, For in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God, for all who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You are one in Christ. It's the ultimate application of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's, and, and it's a precious reality. It is equally important to know that adoption is not just a legal transaction, it's also relational and emotional. When a child's adopted, he or she is not just given a new name, a new identity, and a new inheritance, they're also given a new family, a new home, and new relationships. This is why adoption is such a powerful and transformative experience, not for just the adoptee, but also the adoptee's parent. In the same way, we are adopted into God's family. We're not just given a new legal status. We're also given a new relationship with God, but also with our fellow believers. We are brought into a community of faith, a family of brothers and sisters who share the same father and the same inheritance. This is why Paul often refers to believers as brothers and sisters in his letters, emphasizing the familial nature of our relationship with one another. And we truly are a family. We love each other, and sometimes we're super dysfunctional, and that's what family is all about. But for the most part, it's about love, right? It's the underlying truth of it all is we love each other. In Romans 8, 15 through 17, Paul writes, The spirit you received does not make you slaves 
so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought you into your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. <clears throat> Here he's emphasizing the relational aspects. You have the legal, you have the relational aspect. He says the spirit we have received through faith in Christ brings us into a new relationship with God as our father and with other believers as brothers and sisters. He says the spirit testifies that we are God's children and that as such we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is an incredible privilege and tremendous responsibility because it means that we're called to share in the sufferings of Christ in order to share in his glory. And notice there's some intimate language that Paul uses here to describe the relationship with God as our Father. He says that God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, causing us to cry out, Abba, Father. The term Abba is Aramaic, and it would have been used by children to address their fathers in a very familiar and affectionate way. So by using this term, Paul is emphasizing the closeness and intimacy of our relationship with God. Also notice that Paul says we're no longer slaves, but sons. This is a powerful statement because in that time, slavery was common. It was accepted. It was normalized. Slaves had no legal rights. They had no standing in society. <clears throat> they were considered property, not people. So by contrast, sons had full rights to their parents' wealth and their legacy, and they enjoyed the status and dignity that slaves would never experience. By using this analogy, Paul is emphasizing the radical transformation that occurs when we are adopted into God's family. We go from being slaves to sin and death to being heirs of God's kingdom and co-heirs with Christ. Hallelujah. Our adoption into God's family means that we have a new family. We're no longer isolated. We're no longer alone. We are part of a community of believers who share a common bond in Christ. This family transcends all cultural, social, or national boundaries. It's a family that's united by our love of God and our commitment to follow Jesus. This should give us a sense of belonging and purpose. It should should also inspire us to reach out to those who are in need of those connections. Everyone needs to be loved and feel like they belong. So what does it mean to share in the sufferings of Christ? That's a, that's a tough topic to preach. It means that we're called to follow in his footsteps, to take up our crosses daily, and follow him. We covered that in Mark, but it's in the, all the Gospels, you know, it's in Luke. It means that we're called to love others as he loved us, even to, point, even to the point of laying down our lives for them. Reference John 15 in there. Um, it means that we're called to live for him 
and not for ourselves, to serve him and not our own desires. That's from 2 Corinthians. It means that we are called to be his witness to the world, to proclaim the gospel of salvation and reconciliation to all people. That's Acts But why would, we, why would we do all of that? Why would we endure all the suffering and hardship for the sake of Christ and his gospel? Because we're children of God, and we've been adopted into his family. That's why. Because we have a new identity and a new inheritance, and we want to honor our father by living as his children. Because we love him. We want to obey him. It's not obligation or fear. It's gratitude and joy. Suffer in joy in the suffering. Many of God's adoptees don't realize their inheritance. Many approach God only as servants. They fail to approach him as as his dearly loved sons. So referring back to that story of the prodigal son, many believers live like the oldest son that never left. He resented the love that his brother got. He completely failed to understand and apply the truth of his father's words. Son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. Through our adoption, we are able to draw upon our full inheritance as heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's pretty incredible when you sit and think about it. The word became flesh and he lived among us as Christ Jesus. He lived a blameless and holy life to be an example to others, creating disciples and setting the foundations of his future church. As a completely innocent man, he was judged and sentenced to death. He was put on a cross. He was bludgeoned. He was beaten. He was tortured and left to die. Without ever having sin, he became sin. He was the perfect unblemished sacrifice to God that paid our ransom and restored mankind to him. Sin was taken and it was placed in a tomb where it was buried forever. Defeated. Romans placed a giant stone over that tomb and they sealed it with the stamp of the Roman Empire. It was a display of their power and authority over man that made the proclamation that he was the son of God. Jesus rose from the dead Hallelujah. Justifying all of creation, fulfilling every prophecy, defeating death, and giving guarantee to his promise of eternal life. The tomb was empty. Rejecting the power and authority that was assumed by man. And in his great mercy, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he placed his own personal seal upon the adoption papers of every heart that was willing to believe in him. It's like a blank check. The seal is already there. You just got to fill in your name. That is good news. And that's the gospel truth. He then ascended to prepare our place in heaven and to be our intercessor sitting at the right hand of God the Father. 
Jonathan said God made the universe, so he gets to make the rules. I don't think that's fair. No, it's totally fair, and I'm glad that's the truth, because if it was left up to me, there would be a mess here. In essence, he was the only one capable of redeeming us to himself. He did the unimaginable to reclaim the unredeemable. Hallelujah. We have a new destiny. We are no longer destined for judgment or condemnation. We are destined for eternal life in God's kingdom. And this is a destiny that is secure and certain because it's based on God's promise and not on our merits. This should give us a sense of hope and peace that even in the midst of trials and difficulties, you can embrace. Joy in the suffering. It should also inspire us to live in a way that reflects our future destiny by seeking to do God's will, by sharing the hope of the gospel with the world. Much like that reclaimed bowling rack upon which my soul was saved, this cross has also been reclaimed. And I'm not talking about this cross. I'm talking about the cross. The idea, the concept, the the cross has been reclaimed. For hundreds of years, the crucifix was used by the Roman Empire as a mean, means to intimidate and control the masses. It was a demonstration of their ruthlessness and their brutality. Fear is control. We're seeing that today, aren't we? Now, because of the redemptive power of Christ alone, it represents the peace, love, and joy that we inherit as adopted children of God's family. Because of his own sacrifice, that's the Jesus we get to serve. Amen? So that's the heart of the, the doctrine of adoption. It's not legal transaction, or it's not just a legal transaction or a theological concept. It's a life-changing reality. It should transform our relationship with God. And just as importantly, it should transform our relationship with one another. It gives us a new identity, a new family, purpose. It shows us love, mercy, and grace of God in a way that nothing else can. So if you would be so kind, can I ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes for me? Let's take a moment to really think about our relationship with God. Have you chosen to accept what's been freely given? Are you like me? Did you think that all along you've been a faithful church attendee and a good person, and that's what being a Christian looks like? Well, this is your opportunity to choose to be adopted. It's a choice into the most loving family imaginable and claim your inheritance. If that's you, I'm prophesying this over you right now. God is healing this. Sometimes we have to suffer to find healing. Also, 
If that's you and you want to change that destiny, can I ask you to acknowledge right now by either placing your hands over your heart or raising your hands to God? Just acknowledge it right now. No one's looking. Everyone's eyes are closed. There's no embarrassment. There's no judgment. This is a moment where heaven wants to rejoice. The prodigal son has returned. Let's claim our place in God's family and listen to countless angels throw a massive party in heaven for us. So let's pray this together as a family, if you'd repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died for my sins. Please forgive me. I believe he rose from the grave. And I ask for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for adopting me into your family. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. How about a round of applause for Jesus? So it's, it gets said every week, but we will have a prayer team up here at the front. And they have been waiting all week to pray for you, with you, celebrate with you, talk with you. Come get prayer. If you are one of the people that accepted your salvation today, number one, we love you so much. We are so happy for you. Number two, tell somebody. These folks up here have a ton of wisdom. Ton of wisdom. Come tell them, find out what's next. Because I didn't know. I, I was 16 years old at the time, but I needed guidance. And honestly, I could have been 43 and I still would have needed guidance. Tell somebody. Communicate it. Or get, get prayer for whatever your needs are. Or if you want, just hang out in the back, grab some coffee, and tell each other your testimonies. Because testimonies are powerful and somebody may have to, the need to hear what you have to say. In any case, go from this place and live like you are the inheritors of everything God's promised. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. See you on Palm Sunday.